Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum radio show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high-tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for, bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to better understand and defend your faith the same way Jesus did. I have the distinct honor today of interviewing one of the leading apologists in the world today, Jay Warner Wallace. Wallace earned a bachelor's degree in design from California State University at Long Beach and a master's degree in architecture from UCLA. He went on to have a long and diverse career in law enforcement, including SWAT, gang detail, robbery homicide, and is one of the founding members of a cold case homicide unit. After becoming a Christian later in life, he has applied his investigative training to his faith, writing several apologetics books and becoming a senior fellow at the Colson Center and an adjunct professor of apologetics at the Talbot School of Theology in Biola and Southern Evangelical Seminary. Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So the only exposure that most people have with cold case homicide is what they've seen on TV. Can you walk us through what that job looks like in real life? What are the most difficult challenges? What kind of practices or methods are crucial to success, etc.? Cold cases are all homicides because that's the only crime that has no statute of limitations. You can return to these things years later where you couldn't return to a theft, let's say, or a robbery mm. or a burglary years later because those will close by statute. They will expire. The homicides don't expire. And so most of us who are working cold case homicides probably spent a period of time like I did assigned to our robbery homicide team working fresh homicides. And then mm. at some point, our agency started assigning us these unsolved murders from decades earlier, it kind of as a collateral duty. That means for the most part that you're not putting your best time and effort into collateral duty stuff, right? Because you've got fresh homicides that are coming up all the time. And, <laughs> sure. and I just can't be distracted by it. So what happens is these don't get done. These mm-hmm. don't get investigated. But for us in our agency, we had an injury that put me light duty for about six months. Mm-hmm. And during that six months, I asked a partner who had an open case let me work this case. I, my case I was assigned, I didn't like as much, but the, the one that he had, I really liked. And, and it was, seemed like it was something that was more creative. And so I opened the case and solved it. And that got our agency some national press. And so I ended up on a Dateline episode. And then that started a long run of Dateline episodes. And that's why we formed a full-time team. If you can start to have some preliminary success well, then your agency will think it's worth funding, right? Because this is not a cheap endeavor. You've got two or three detectives, a criminalist, uh, resources, facilities. It becomes a more difficult thing to fund. What we're doing basically is the kind of the same work you do when you investigate a murder, only you're often looking in weird places. You're looking in, you know, typically when a series of dominoes falls toward an event, you don't realize that it's probably going to touch off a couple of other domino trails And then 15 years later, I'm not going to look just in the first domino trail. I'm also looking at those splinter trails to see if there's any evidence over there that maybe we overlooked, that maybe could help us make a cumulative case. And that's a lot of what we're doing is we're looking in those kind of niche places where maybe you wouldn't expect to find evidence, but it sure turns out that, and remember that everything counts as evidence. It's not... You have to learn a lot about how to uh, investigate cases and how what counts as evidence before you start doing this kind of thing. 
do you think that when you do let the case grow cold, or as you said, as you let more dominoes fall afterwards, could that ever be an advantage? Could it ever be easier to solve a case because you've got 10 years of post-homicide data that you didn't have right at the fresh, right when it happened? Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's part of the thing you're, you're looking at now is okay. all the all the stuff that occurred afterwards that you weren't privy to in the first two years of working the case that now you've had time. Sometimes, you know, you also have the advantage of distance and time that helps you with witnesses. So for example, mm. if I'm somebody who was either close to the suspect, had some kind of relationship or fear of the suspect, if things change over time, well, now this person is willing to start talking about it or is willing to admit something or, or you know, there's other opportunities come up because time has passed and there's some distance between the person who did the crime and the person who might have some information about the crime. So a lot of it is wow. these are generally weak cases evidentially to begin with. And that's why they went unsolved. I and see. you just got to figure out, you know, and again, I have a very broad view of what counts as evidence. I always say that everything counts. What you find in the crime scene physically, well, of course, that's going to count as evidence. But what should have been in the crime scene or could have been in the crime scene but is missing, mm -hmm. that also counts. What does he do? Okay, that counts. What does he fail to do when he could have done it? Well, that counts also. You know, What did he say? What did he fail to say? I mean, everything counts. And so you're just trying to be more creative and more attentive to the details. It's interesting. I think that's the second time you've used that word creative to talk about police work. Again, one of my assumptions would have been, you know, the best investigators, you know, they have the book and they just follow the book and they never deviate. Do you think that being creative, tapping into that creative side helps you more as a cold case detective than a regular, what I don't know what the opposite is, a fresh homicide detective? Does it help to be more creative as a cold case detective? Well, I, I think it helps be more creative in any aspect of those careers that you might think are by their very nature uncreative, right? But mm. it turns out that, you know, we've been created in the image of a creative God. And so mm. that's why we pursue creative activities because God, our creator, is a creator. And so, right, right. so I think it's in our nature to begin with to want to pursue these kinds of things. And so it's, sometimes you're looking at cases and saying, well, we're not creative in terms of inventing something that's not sure. true, but creative in terms of like, how can I tickle out mm. this thing that I think is there that I just need to be more creative about how I approach it. You know, for example, there's a lot of creativity in interviews in the sense of how, when I get to make choices, when do I want to interview him? What's the context of the interview? What kinds of questions do I want to ask? What will the setting be? You know, these are things that I can still control. And these are creative choices that I have mm. to make in terms of how I do an interview or when I time the interview, mm. well, who am I going to talk to first? What's the data I want to have in mind before I begin this interview? Sometimes it does feel like you're just knocking on doors, knocking on doors, knocking on doors until finally one opens. But it turns <laughs> out that there's lots of times where I can be creative about the way I do things that so when I get to that door, which I've already decided I wanted to knock on to begin with it opens easier because I did a bunch of creative things to set the stage for what I hope will happen. One of the things that we talked about, it may actually be easier aspects anyway, easier to solve a case that's cold because you've got more data and, and so forth. Another aspect might be you rely on expert witnesses, you know, DNA and things like that. And technology is always progressing. And so do you think that 
that kind of technological advancement plays into being able to solve cases today that weren't able to be solved you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago because the technology of expert witnesses didn't exist? Or is that the wrong way to look at it? No, there's a lot of cases. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of agencies that are leveraging the advances in technology to solve cases. I never had a case that I solved that way until about two years ago. Mm. And it was a case from 1972. I opened the case, I think, in around 2003. I think I submitted the first DNA on that case in 2006, and we had no hit. And it wasn't until Ancestry DNA was starting to be leveraged oh, in 2017 wow. that we actually got a hit and made the identification in 2019, but our suspect had been dead for a number of years. My whole point is, is that, yes, hmm. there are times when the technology will help you. That has not been the kind of you know meat and potatoes of my work. Okay. My work has been you know kind of interviews and looking for a new piece of evidence that maybe Nobody understood why it would be important, but it turns out that it is important. Uh, so that kind of thing is, it's more creative. And that's why I use that word creative because uh, it's really about how willing am I to open up the areas that I'm willing to look at. And you might say, well, there's no point in the book. What are the odds of finding something over there? <laughs> well, you know, again, if you don't look, you don't find. And so yeah. it's about like, you guys open up your mind to where else you might be able to look. Who else might you be able to talk to? Mm. If this happened in this part of the world, well, what was the... You know, the schedule like for taxis? What was the schedule like for the train that went by there? What, you know, we got to be more creative and open up the possibilities that somebody saw something that we just haven't contacted yet. And we just got to be creative about where we start looking for those people. And so that's the kind of stuff that we kind of made a living at in our team because we wanted to have luck with the technology. Right. And we did try. We submitted DNA cases and just, you know, again, now it's a little easier. This whole leveraging the entire ancestry DNA possibilities really was the game changer. I mean, mm. we're using the same DNA technology we were using 25 years ago, but now we have databases that have capitalized on the internet sensation of ancestry searches. So now you're going to see a bunch of stuff get solved. Oh, that's super cool. Well, as we talked about in the beginning, you've applied this sort of investigative training and thinking creatively and outside the box, but also being very analytical and methodical in your approach to data and looking for things, looking for clues, looking for signs. You've applied that to your Christian faith, which I think is just super cool, fascinating. And you've ended up writing several books on this topic of apologetics through this kind of detective mindset. Can you give us a short synopsis of maybe your top two or three books? I know you've got one out recently. A synopsis of your top two or three favorite books and maybe a little bit of kind of compare and contrast about what the subjects have been and maybe if they've evolved as your writing career has progressed. Yeah. I mean, I've written books where I take all the stuff we've learned working cases and applied them to events in the past, like, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, the claims of the gospel authors did that in a book called Cold Case Christianity. This most recent book, really, we take an approach that we would take with nobody murders. So in a nobody murder, somebody has killed somebody and then gotten rid of the body altogether in such a successful way that the body is never discovered. Mm. And then, you know, originally they report this person as missing. They take a missing person's report. It's never even investigated as a murder. Three decades go by and now you've got an open case that was always initially reported as a missing person's case. And there's not a single piece of property booked in. No photographs were taken of a crime scene. There was an assumption that there was no crime scene (laughs) and there's no body. So now what do you have here? You have a claim. They have a missing person still and you have a claim. 
Well, what we tell the jury when we finally go to trial after we've investigated this is that, yes, on the day that this person went missing, if it was a murder, that was an explosive event on that day. A bomb went off, but that bomb was preceded by a fuse that burned toward the detonation of the bomb. And after the bomb explodes, you've got shrapnel and debris all over the blast radius. So what we're going to do is demonstrate that a felony did occur on that day. And we're going to demonstrate the felon by simply looking at the fuse and the fallout. That fuse and fallout will tell us who the felon is. And, <laughs> and it turns out the same kind of approach can be taken with mm. Jesus of Nazareth. If we, just to, for sake of argument, let's just assume that every New Testament document has been utterly destroyed. So there's not a Bible available anywhere on planet Earth. There is not a New Testament manuscript of any kind available anywhere on planet Earth. Okay, well, how we reconstruct the story of Jesus? It turns out that he had such an impact on human history that it's unparalleled. And in, mm. in the most important mm. aspects of human culture have got Jesus's fingerprints all over them. And you can reconstruct the story of Jesus entirely from the fuse and fallout of history. And that makes no sense at all, unless, of course, Jesus is who he said he was. Mm -hmm. And so what this book does is make a case for the historicity and deity of Jesus, as if every New Testament had been destroyed, taking this nobody murder approach of the fuse and the fallout. And we just show the template. I walk you through a case in which we, you know, we solve a murder of a woman named Tammy Hayes, and we show you how the fuse and fallout helped us solve that murder. Then we turn each chapter toward Jesus, mm -hmm. and we show you how the fuse and fallout of history demonstrates that Jesus is who he said he was. And that approach, I hope, will give people insight into aspects of Jesus's life and impact on culture that I think our kids are not learning in school anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> and I think you'll be surprised to find where you find evidence of Jesus, because it turns out when it comes down to art, music, literature, education, science, and even non-Christian world religions, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from all of those aspects of culture, because he had that much impact on those aspects of culture. Wow. What's fascinating about that, Jim, is this idea of a fallout it came up in the beginning of our conversation. We were talking about, you know, cold case homicide. It actually, you can get more data by waiting until after the crime has been committed, you know, a year, two years, five years, 10 years. It sounds like what you're saying is we may have more evidence about who Jesus was having waited 2,000 years to see what the fallout has been than maybe even people in the first century. Is that a valid way of looking at it? Yeah, well, I actually think you could learn everything you need to know about Jesus without any information, without ever possessing a New Testament, because the details of the life of Jesus have been repeated so many times in the history of literature, the history of music, the history of art, the history of education and science. So let me give you an example of how crazy it is. It turns out <laughs> that the worldview of Jesus is a catalyst for the sciences. And if you look at the growth of scientific discovery on the history of humans, you will find that it begins to jettison upward in the graph after the appearance of Jesus in history. And that didn't have to be that way. Jesus could have appeared in the middle of the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries. He could have appeared sure. a thousand years earlier. But it turns out he appears just as science begins to blossom. Why? Mm -hmm. Is there just a coincidence or is he a catalyst in some way? Well, I think there's seven reasons why he's a catalyst. And I talk about those in the book. But what I wanted to show you is mm -hmm. that 
If you look at the most prominent scientists in the history of science, the people who ended up being the founders, initiators, and fathers of the major modern scientific disciplines from modern biology, astronomy, chemistry, all the way to quantum mechanics, computer sciences, you'll find that these disciplines were founded and fathered by Christ followers. When you see the list, I think it'll blow you away to realize how (laughs) many Christ followers have been so formative in the sciences. And from the science fathers of history, you can look at their personal journals and their letters to one another and their letters to their loved ones and even books they've written. And you'll find they're writing about more than just science. They're also writing about Jesus of Nazareth. And from the writings of the science fathers, you can collect more data than you can from the writings of the Antonicene church fathers. (laughs) That's pretty remarkable if you think about it, because most people think of science and faith as being, you know, kind of forever opposed. But the reality of it is that scientists, by and large, you know, more Nobel laureates in the sciences were Christ followers than any other group combined. It's just that's the impact we've had on sciences. Now, we can decide if today we want to stop having that impact, but it turns out that would have to be a choice because we have Mm. always had that impact up to, including, and past Darwin. Darwin does not change the impact of Christians. So I show this in the book in a series of illustrations so you can see the kind of impact that Christians have had and see exactly how much of the Jesus story you can reconstruct from the science fathers. Yeah, this is totally consistent with mimics what I've seen and experienced and even taught on this. And I've, I don't know if it makes me sad or mad, (laughs) but the analogy I use is I say, it's as if Christians, you know, who are armed to the gills with machine guns and tanks and all these kinds of things, we're in this war. And the first thing we've done is we've rushed out into the battle and we've given over all of our weapons to the other side and then retreated. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> this is all our stuff. <laughs> and so, yeah, exactly. um, one thing that I've always struggled with, again, I work in a, an environment where most of my peers have PhDs in mm-hmm. you know, physics and chemistry and electromagnetics and I've often struggled moving from kind of a common ground general revelation conversation with them to a special revelation topic. So, for example, you can learn that Jesus died and rose again just based on, like you said, evidence and the fallout, you know, eyewitness accounts and things like that. You can get all of that information that Jesus died and rose again from general revelation. What you can't get is that his death paid for our sins and that his resurrection guaranteed a reconciliation to God that we couldn't purchase ourselves. What advice do you have for people who are in technical fields, who are having these conversations with people, great common ground, general revelation starting points, how to make that transition to the actual evangelistic conversation of accept Christ for your sins and be reconciled to God? Yeah. So what's interesting is, and so here's what I would say that most of us who are not believers, and I didn't become a believer till I was 35 mm-hmm. and I was already a detective. I just didn't know anything about Jesus. I didn't really care to know anything about Jesus and mm-hmm. began an investigation that ultimately I chronicle in this book. But I will tell you that I think part of it is we have to help non-believers recognize that the things that matter most to non-believers, art, music, education, literature, science, Those are the things that are the most indebted to Jesus. Mm. And I think we just have not talked about that. 
we can talk about, well, we ought to know there's a God for any number of arguments or evidences we find in the universe that demonstrate that God exists. Now, I don't even think you can get from there to Jesus without getting into special revelation. Natural sure. revelation sure. will get you about where a Muslim can get or somebody who, you know, any worldview. I wrote a book right. called God's Crime Scene where I just look at the evidence for God in the universe. But at the end of that, that's a book you could give to your Muslim friends and they would say, okay, well, good. This is good evidence for Allah, <laughs> but right. this is also good evidence for Yahweh. So which right. of the two is it? Well, yeah. that now we come down to turning a corner and testing the eyewitness accounts we call the Gospels. And I think that's one of the things I you know, had to do as well as I had to take time to say, okay, what makes a reliable eyewitness account? How do I determine that someone is a reliable eyewitness in a criminal trial? Could I apply that same template to the gospel authors? Well, I did that in a book called Cold Case Christianity. But here's what I would say about this balance between natural revelation and special revelation. In the end, I think that people don't understand how much of what we are doing today has been dependent on a history driven by Jesus of Nazareth. The technology we're using in which to even have this conversation is part of a scientific revolution that was driven by overwhelmingly Christian scientists mm -hmm. who were in Europe in something we call Christendom, when there were far more people outside of Europe and outside of Christendom, yet science didn't take off over there. It took off over here. Why? What is it about this worldview that ignites a passion in the sciences? Well, I think there's something we need to share with people. And then once we have done that, then we've got to ask the second question. Well, why do you think Jesus had this kind of impact? Well, why do you think mm. that we're calling this the first mm. century when it wasn't the first century? <laughs> but we call it that because something happened, right. something so phenomenal. And guess who catalyzed that? This guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and I want you to think about it. Look at all the other people who lived in the first century. I've got a list of them in the last chapter of the book. Just look at that list. There's, there's people who led nations, who led empires, who were warriors, who were poets, who were authors, and none of them had the impact of this guy who was just some niche little Jewish sage born in a nowhere town and raised in another <laughs> nowhere town who never moved more than about 200 miles and never had more than three years to have a public impact, who was chased around and denied by his own followers, who never had a family or a legacy to, to carry on of his own kids, who didn't receive a formal education the way that some of the people on that list had. And this is the guy who then is actually falsely accused, brutally beaten, humiliated, and then has to borrow a grave. <laughs> that's the guy that's the guy who counts for what we now call the first century wow. now we have to make sense of it mm. now it makes no sense at all if he's just by worldly standards this small jewish sage on the other hand if he is the creator of the universe who steps into his creation wouldn't you expect us now to call that the first century mm. that's what's happening here we have to be able to help people turn corners from the amazing impact of jesus in history toward the only way to explain that impact. Mm. And it has to be, look, if there's no other fictional character who's had this kind of impact on human history, and there is not, mm. then it's reasonable to assume he's something more than a fictional character. And if there's no other mortal human who's had this kind of impact on human history, and there's not, it's reasonable to infer he's something more than human. And that's why I think this kind of approach will at least help us to move closer toward the historicity and deity of Jesus.
Mm, awesome. Well, if you've liked what you've heard here, Detective Wallace will be speaking at our monthly discussion forum next week on Friday, December 10th. He'll be speaking for about 45 minutes, and then there will be a full 45 minutes of open Q&A for you to be able to ask your own questions and engage in the conversation. You can visit our website at theambassadorsforum.com. Also, be sure to check out Jim's website at coldcasedchristianity.com for tons of helpful resources. We'll leave a link on our website for that as well. Jim, thanks so much for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, how about you? Have you thought of Christianity simply as an intellectual crutch for weak people? Or maybe at best, a reasonable benefit to society as a moral religion? Have you ever stopped to consider the overwhelming evidence and data that supports every claim of Christianity as the only true worldview that exists? Have you given God the credit he deserves as the source of all truth and the author of life and salvation in the universe? One solid step you can take today is to order J. Warner Wallace's new book, person of interest. We'll leave a link on our website. This book will walk you through the overwhelming amount of evidence that supports Christianity. Order it for your own edification or to read and then give to an unbelieving friend to help them engage with the most important evidence they will ever encounter, strong proof of the life and significance of Jesus Christ. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 